Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and you are listening to Remembering the Misremembered. And you know what I always say, the people that I talk about are not necessarily forgotten, but they may be misremembered. Now, on this episode, which is my fourth, um, I'm going to be talking about the gospel great, Clara Ward. Um, Clara Ward was... um, She was a powerhouse in the gospel field, and she inspired Aretha Franklin and a lot of other people. So she's who we're going to be talking about today. Her and her family, her singers, Clara Ward, the great Clara Ward. Uh, Today is the 2nd of January, as I'm recording this. Um, This is very much a welcome by a lot of people, and a lot of people are happy to see 2020 go, you know, and um, I'm really interested to see what 2021 has to offer, I know I am, I think it's going to be a great year, you know, it's not to say that we won't have challenges, but I think it's going to be a really good year, so anyway, I um, would like to pay a little bit of tribute to Uh, Somebody that we lost um, just a few days ago. It was really strange. Um, Adolfo Shabadu Ozone Keonis. Uh, He was a pioneering break dancer. You know, he uh, really put street dancing on the map with, along with Fred Rerun Berry and Tony Basil and others. They started off dancing together um, in the 70s. But anyway, um, I followed him on um, Instagram, and he had posted um, a video basically saying that he had been really, you know, he he had a cold, he had been sick, but that he was doing much better, and that he uh, was COVID negative. And the very next day, or a couple of days later, he, he passed away at the age of 65, didn't know he was a lot of people didn't know he was 65 he looked really young and you know 65 nowadays is not even old that's like middle age so he's like this middle-aged man who just you know and it seemed to be in good health just passed away and um they don't know if it was COVID they don't seem to know what it was but you know his um, family and friends and fans are just real reeling and you know don't really know what was going on but uh we would like to remember him because he was a pioneer he i used to go see that breaking movie every weekend when i was a kid with my friends we would do that every weekend but anyway he has gone on uh, into the world of the invisibles he uh is now um going into being an ancestor so Rest in power to Adolfo Keones, also known as Shabadoo, also known as Ozone. Anyway, let me get on with the show because we have a lot to cover with Clara Ward. Um, Clara Ward, she was a singer, she was a songwriter, she was an arranger in the gospel music field real pioneer. She was born on April 21st, 1924 in Philadelphia. And she was the youngest of three kids born to George Ward and Gertrude Ward. 
Um, George was an industrial worker and he stayed in this professional capacity for 42 years. Um, not much is said about him. I couldn't find a lot of information about him, but I did read somewhere that he was kindly and he seemed to have been uh, the more laid back parent because Gertrude was the powerhouse. She really was something else. We'll get into that. But uh, Clara had a sister named, I believe it's pronounced Willerine. I don't think it's Willa Renee. I think it's Willerine. Um, and she was known as Willa. She played the piano. She was three and a half years older than Clara. Um, I don't know what happened to this other sibling because uh, there were three kids in the family. I guess it, uh, the child may have died in infancy or early childhood because there's nothing else said about him or her. But uh, George and Gertrude were from Anderson, South Carolina, and they came to Philadelphia for a better life in 1920. Uh, Gertrude worked as a domestic, but she was uh, so ambitious and determined that you know she wouldn't be satisfied doing this kind of work for long, you know, doing laundry work and that type of thing. Um, the family became members of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and Gertrude formed a family group with her two daughters after claiming that a voice, and we're to believe this voice was the voice of God, instructed her to go sing my gospel and help save dying and lost men and women. Gertrude enthusiastically complied too. Not only was Gertrude a singer, musician, and evangelist, but she made a name for herself as a promoter and manager. Today, Gertrude would be, um, she'd be called a, ma a momager. You know, she managed her kids, but um, she was an aggressive stage parent. And she was extremely ambitious for her daughters, particularly Clara, who was like the, the child prodigy. You know, she really was real talented from a little kid on up. Um, they say that Gertrude was an abusive and demanding taskmaster and that she competed with her kids and also pitted them against each other. Uh, the singing group started off being known as the Ward Singers when they first formed in 1931, when Clara was seven and Willa was about ten. Um, they were also known as the Consecrated Gospel Singers and also the Ward Trio. They changed their name quite a bit. Um, the group eventually came to be known, or uh, <laughs> sorry, the group eventually would be known for such hits as Surely God is Able, Traveling Shoes, and How I Got Over. Uh, Clara wrote How I Got Over uh, after a confrontation with racists when the group was on the road. Also, Packing Up is another one of their hits. And they were real dramatic when they would perform that. That turned some gospel uh, fans off because it seemed like they were just being too worldly and too dramatic. But, you know, it added to the performance. But anyway, Willa claimed that the family moved about 24 times before she was 19, which would mean um, about 24 times by the time that um, Clara was 15. That's a lot. And Clara recorded for the first time in 1940 as a solo, but continued performing with the family group. Um, it was around 1943 that the Ward Singers performed at the National Baptist Convention in Philadelphia. That's the thing that really put them on the map. After this appearance, the group started to tour nationally. And in the late 1940s, the Wards added two new singers to the group, which uh, rough-voiced South Carolina native Henrietta Waddy and Miami, Florida native Marion Williams. And Marion Williams was a powerful singer with a very wide vocal range, and she could growl and howl with the best country preachers. Her high notes inspired rock and roll pioneer Little Richard. You know, woo, you know, she would do a lot of that, and Little Richard got that from her. Um, 
Music historians say that it was Williams' sound and style that caused the group to soar in popularity when they solidified their recording career in 1948, and this ushered in the golden age of gospel. Uh, traveling by brand new Cadillac, the Ward Singers toured the country from the East Coast to the West Coast. They recorded for LA's Milltone Records and were soon making television appearances. Clara Ward and the famous Ward Singers of Philadelphia debuted at Carnegie Hall in 1950 in a gospel music program called Negro Music Festival. Uh, in 1952, they appeared at the program again, along with Mahalia Jackson. Joe Bostic, uh, an announcer and gospel pioneer, he's like a DJ, he hosted the event both times. Um, the always ambitious and enterprising Gertrude Ward started building an empire in the gospel music industry. In addition to founding her family's music act, she created a booking agency for gospel music performers, and she showed real business acumen by also sponsoring tours for gospel acts known as the Ward Gospel Cavalcade. And she put together a gospel music publishing house. And this was definitely rare for a woman and certainly unheard of for a black woman. Gertrude put together a second group, the Clara Ward Specials, which she also managed. Gertrude hosted a popular religious radio program in the Los Angeles market. Gertrude and Clara allegedly didn't want to share the wealth with the other singers in the group, including Willa. Everybody made much less than Gertrude and Clara. With the group's lead switching, each singer's talents were put on full display. Clara didn't mind sharing the spotlight, she just had a little trouble sharing the wealth. Lead switching and vocal step-outs were usually done in male singing groups, but the Ward singers also adopted this stage practice. Clara was known not just for her singing ability, but also for her songwriting and more so her arranging of vocals. The group members' housing was provided by Gertrude and Clara. So the singer had secondary billing within the group, less pay for their work, and their rent was played, paid out of what they did earn. So for a gospel group, the ward singers were glamorous and glitzy. You know, they wore bouffant beehives and evening gowns, and they were very high energy. They even wore makeup. Gospel purists criticized them for this and also looked down on them for performing in venues that were outside of church walls. Clara believed in using her gifts for God, but she believed in going to people that she thought needed to hear the message. In later years, the Wards performed in Las Vegas, Disneyland, they did a Broadway musical, and even performed at the Playboy Mansion, cheered on by Hugh Hefner himself. They worked nightclubs and other venues. Working at secular venues became necessary after the 1958 departure of Marion Williams, who left over payment disputes. She was followed out the door by Henrietta Waddy, Esther Ford, Kitty Parham, and Frances Stedman, and they went on to start a group of their own called the Stars of Faith. In the early 1960s, Clara became the second gospel singer to sing gospel songs on Broadway and Langston Hughes' Tambourines to Glory. She also acted as the show's musical director. Clara's former group members, the Stars of Faith, were actually the first gospel act to perform on Broadway in the Black Nativity alongside Langston Hughes. And this was actually the first play featuring an all-black cast on Broadway. Clara was the first gospel singer to sing with the 100-piece symphony orchestra, and the Clara Ward singers recorded an album together called The Heart, The Faith, The Soul. Clara and the group performed live in Philadelphia with that city's symphony and the Golden Voices Ensemble. 
Clara and her sister Willa sang background on Dee Dee Sharp's Mashed Potato Time, which reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1962. There were also recordings of pop songs from Broadway plays, Hollywood movies, and a reworking of the Mamas and Papas California Dreaming. Clara provided vocals on The New Age, an album by the rock group Canned Heat. So, you know, Clara, she believed in using her gift for God, but she also knew how to take advantage of other opportunities. The Clara Ward singers toured Vietnam for the USO in 1968 and 1969 to help keep up the morale for the military troops. And they received special certificates from the U.S. Army. Clara also did some acting, playing a waitress in a movie called A Time to Sing, and made appearances in It's Your Thing, which starred the Isley Brothers and Spree, also known as Nighttime in Las Vegas. During the 1960s and early 70s, they performed in Europe, Australia, Asia, and were in demand for appearances on TV programs. They did a TV special in London, and their appearance on Oral Roberts' Country Roads TV special was released as a soundtrack album. As if Clara's schedule wasn't already packed enough, she regularly performed at her mother's Los Angeles church. Clara Ward had a very successful professional life, but her personal life was unfulfilling and unhappy. She was sexually abused as a child by one of her cousins. She was bullied and cajoled by her mother. Gertrude exploited Clara's considerable musical talents and pushed Clara as the family's breadwinner. She was really a cash cow, and her mother really, you know, took advantage of that, so that's really unfortunate because it really negatively impacted her life. I mean, I look at this schedule that they had, and I get tired just looking at it, but Willa, who is Clara's sister, said that Gertrude got in the way of Clara developing romantic entanglements with men. Clara ran off and got married at the age of 17, and she had one documented pregnancy that ended in miscarriage. The marriage lasted only one year. Most people blame Gertrude, who forced Clara to tour all the time. She was badly overworked, and she fell into lesbian relationships because these bonds tended to escape Gertrude's notice. Clara was often depressed and fell into alcoholism. The Clara Ward singers often found themselves touring with C.L. Franklin, the famous Detroit-based preacher who fathered Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin. Clara spent lots of time with the Franklin family in their home and was a mentor to young Aretha. Well, C.L. and Clara became romantically involved, and according to both gospel legend James Cleveland and blues icon B.B. King, the relationship was so violent that C.L. and Clara were nicknamed the Ike and Tina of gospel. Ray Charles talked about how the so-called church folk were wilder than he was, and Ray was a notorious womanizer and heroin addict. He said that these gospel singers did the same things that rock singers did. They were just hypocritical about it. One of their favorite things to do after a gospel concert was to have a big meal and end the night with a wild sex orgy. And C.L. Franklin, the right reverend, got into everything he was big and bad enough to get into. He was the last thing Clara needed in her life. I believe he was on and off with her for the rest of her life or until her health failed. While performing in Miami, Clara Ward collapsed. I'm not sure if this happened on stage or off, but it happened sometime in 1966. In 1967, she suffered a massive stroke, but she continued working after this and did those shows in Vietnam that we had talked about earlier. But she had a couple more after that. One was in 1972 while she was recording at her home studio. 
The next stroke occurred on January 9, 1973, and this one left her in a coma. Clara Ward died exactly one week later, on January 16, 1973, at UCLA Medical Center. She was only 48 years old. Both C.L. and Aretha Franklin sang at Clara's Philadelphia funeral, and former Ward singer Marion Williams sang at her Los Angeles memorial service. Clara has received numerous honors over the years, including Songwriters Hall of Fame honors in 1977, which was accepted by her older sister, Willa. The post office gave her and other gospel singers a 32-cent stamp in 1998, which I believe is still available online with the purchase of a gospel CD. Clara was also one of many artists whose material was lost in the 2008 Universal Fire. It's really unfortunate. Clara's mother, Gertrude, died in 1981 at about 80 years old, and her sister, Willa, died in uh, 2012 at the age of 91. Willa Ward Royster wrote a book about their lives entitled How I Got Over in 1997. So that's the story of Clara Ward and the Ward Singers. They were really something. They broke down a lot of barriers, and uh, they were pioneers. They were pioneers in the music industry, whether you look at it, the gospel industry or the secular industry. They were pioneers, and they opened a lot of doors for a lot of people. And it's just unfortunate that Clara had uh, you know, everything going for her professionally, but her personal life was unfulfilling and not happy. She couldn't get C.L. Franklin to commit to her. Her mother was down her back. And uh, it just was a very unfortunate situation. But Clara left us with some great music. She was a great singer and songwriter. And uh, she deserves to be remembered. So here we go, remembering the misremembered Clara Ward. I want to end this segment with, uh, this is from Donna Markova. With this being a new year and a lot of people are making New Year's resolutions and really looking forward. Um, Listen to this. I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom. And that which comes to me as a blossom goes on as fruit. This is Monica. This is Remembering the Misremembered. And I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica. And this is Remembering the Misremembered. Today we're going to be talking about a mobster and a good girl singer. She was the wholesome lead singer of her family singing group. He was a middle-aged mobster with a horrible reputation. The FBI agent who spent years tracking him could never figure out what the attraction was. He was an uncultured man. She was considered to be very refined and very cultured. This was Phyllis McGuire and Sam Giancana. He was the son of Sicilian immigrants, one of eight kids of Antonio Giangana and Antonia Disomnia. His father came to America in 1905, and his mother came in 1906. 
she was born, Sam was born under the name of Guillermo Gengana on May 24th, 1908 in Chicago. His mother passed away in 1910 and his father married a woman named Mary. Sam himself got married in 1933. He married a woman named Angeline and they had three daughters together. Sam started his criminal career with the 42 gang under a political boss named Joseph Esposito. Sam got a reputation as a getaway driver, high earner, and vicious killer. His first arrest happened in 1925, and that was auto theft. He graduated to the title of Trigger Man. He was the prime suspect in three separate murder investigations by the time he was 20 years old. But he did not go on trial for any of these murders. He was tried and convicted in 1929 of burglary and larceny, however. He was released in 1932, having served three years and nine months in prison. Now, while Sam was doing time in Joliet Correctional Center, Phyllis Jane McGuire was born. Phyllis came into the world on February 14, 1931 in Middletown, Ohio. Her father, Asa, was a steel worker, and her mother, the former Lily Fox, was a, a minister of the First Church of God in Miamisburg, Ohio. Phyllis had two older sisters, Christine and Dorothy, and the three of them formed the singing trio known as the McGuire Sisters. The sisters were an overnight success after winning a televised talent show called Arthur Godfrey Talent Scouts in 1952. They had a number of hits and they are probably best known for their versions of Sincerely and Sugar Time. They sang in a sweet, perfect three-part harmony. Phyllis was most visible, obviously, because she was the lead singer. They wore perfect dresses, perfect smiles, and sang in perfect harmony. They appeared on the most popular shows of the time, which would be like Ed Sullivan, Milton um, Burrow, Andy Williams, and Red Skelton even had a show. And they were big on the nightclub circuits throughout the country as well. It was the 1950s, and the McGuire sisters appealed to white, middle-class audiences and were considered squeaky clean, all-American, girl-next-door types. So how did a girl like this bond with the criminal that was Sam Giancana? How did they even meet? The mob and the music industry often went hand in hand, but Sam Giancana was not a mobster with a vested interest in the music industry per se. But he did have a relationship with Frank Sinatra, and rumor has it that Frank introduced the divorced Phyllis to the widowed Sam, whose wife had passed away in 1954. It was in Las Vegas in the early 1960s, and Sam was middle-aged. Phyllis was not yet 30. Sam ingratiated himself to Phyllis by canceling her gambling debt at a casino. Sam's reputation was terrible. The Chicago mobster had alleged ties to the Kennedy administration. You know, he was believed to have um, been involved in doing crooked stuff to get JFK to win the 1960 election. And he was also rumored to have something to do with the 1963 assassination of JFK. He also had alleged ties to the CIA plot to enlist the mafia's help to assassinate the Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. Sam and Phyllis were followed by agents for years, and they appeared before a Chicago grand jury. Now Sam 
he refused to answer questions and was jailed for contempt of court. Sam had been in and out of jail for years for various reasons. Burglary, larceny, bootlegging, many other things. But Phyllis testified that she'd met Sam in 1961 in Las Vegas, traveled with him to Europe and the Caribbean and other locations. She was aware of his reputation but claimed to know nothing of his underworld activities. Phyllis's association with Sam resulted in the McGuire sisters eventually being blacklisted in show business. Sam wasn't a one-woman man, but he expected Phyllis to be a one-man woman. He bugged her room because he thought she was seeing another man. But he was nice to her. You know, he helped her out in a lot of ways, but he did have a jealous and possessive streak. Phyllis was emotionally shattered by what public by the public finding out about the relationship and you know it did to her reputation she had a badly damaged reputation as a result of being involved with this man and it was a very upsetting thing because it wasn't just about her it was about her sisters and her parents and their hearts were broken by this but Phyllis had vast knowledge about the Kennedys Marilyn Monroe the Rat Pack and I'm sure she knew about a lot of other things but the good thing about Phyllis was that she was smart and she knew how to keep her lips closed. She acted like she didn't know anything she saw and didn't see. And you know that's the way to do it if you're gonna do it. But Phyllis and Sam eventually cooled off their relationship. Um, Giancana again refused to testify before a grand jury and was thrown in jail. The mob turned their backs on him, and upon his release from jail, he went to Mexico, and he hid there for seven years. Mexico ended up deporting him in 1974, and he came back to America. He had agreed to testify against organized crime in Chicago, but he didn't live to do it. Sam Giancana was assassinated on June 19, 1975, while he was cooking dinner. It was only a few weeks after his 67th birthday. Phyllis has said that the two greatest losses in her life were her father and Sam. Phyllis and her sisters retired in 1968, although she briefly performed as a solo and the sisters reunited in 1986. When asked if Giancana's dirty money had helped to finance her riches, Phyllis denied it. She claimed that in addition to her successful singing career, she was involved in oil and real estate investments. The girl who knew how to keep her mouth shut passed away peacefully at her Las Vegas home on December 29, 2020, at the age of 89, taking the specifics of what she knew with her. In 1995, HBO produced a movie about the relationship of Sam Giancana and Phyllis McGuire called Sugar Time, and it starred John Turturro and Mary Louise Parker. And it is a good movie. It's a movie that I recommend anybody who's interested in this topic to look at. Because it's uh, it's interesting and it's entertaining. And it's just a fun movie. Um, this is a very, to me, intriguing situation. And you know, it speaks to a lot of things about bad boys with good girls. And good girls who have a bad streak deep down. Nobody could understand this relationship. Everybody was like, what does she see in him? People thought she was just beautiful, sweet girl, and he's this ugly mobster. The only thing I can think of that's similar to it in fairly contemporary times is when Whitney Houston got involved with Bobby Brown. 
you know, everybody thought Whitney was just this little, not an angel. I mean, she always had something of an edge to her, but you just didn't expect her to get involved with somebody like Bobby Brown. But Bobby and Whitney had things in common, and apparently so did Sam and Phyllis. So that is the story of the mobster and the showgirl, Sam Giancana and Phyllis McGuire. R.I.P. to them both, but R.I.P. specifically to Phyllis, because Phyllis just passed a few weeks ago. So that's that. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered, and I will see you soon.